Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Welcome, and thank you for joining uh, us at today's event, hosted by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. It's Thursday, February 8, and today's panel will discuss why Ukrainian victory over Russia is in America's interest, and what does victory for Ukraine look like? I'm John Hardy, the Russia Program Deputy Director here at FDD. We're pleased to have you all here, some in person, some tuning in live for this conversation. Our, our event today comes at a critical time for Ukraine. U.S. aid remains stalled in Congress, even as Ukrainian forces run low on key munitions. The U.S. defense industry is ramping up production, but also need funding that's currently stuck on the Hill. As Congress dithers, Russia has regained the initiative, buoyed by growing de uh, dom domestic production and substantial aid from other authoritarian powers. Russian forces have thankfully made few gains in recent months, despite heavy losses, but much is contingent on the future of U.S. aid. Putin hopes that 2024 will be the year Russia turns the war around. He's betting America's political will to support Ukraine will falter. It's now up to Congress to decide whether will prove him wrong. We're pleased to be joined here today for today's conversation by our distinguished guest, Dr. Celeste Wallander, and FDD's founder and president and chairman of the, Rush, of the Russia program, Cliff May. I'll note that Bradley Bowman, senior director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power, was originally slated to moderate this discussion. However, due to unfortunate last minute illness, he's unable to join us here today. Cliff, uh, thank you for stepping in at the last minute for Brad and Brad wishing you a, a speedy recovery. Our guest, Dr. Celeste Wallander, is Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy at the U.S. Department of Defense. She previously served, served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia and Central Asia at the National Security Council, and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Outside government, she served as President and CEO of the U.S.-Russia Foundation, a professor at American University, visiting professor at Georgetown University, director of, of Russian and Eurasia at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and professor of government at Harvard. She is the author of over 80 publications on European and Eurasian security issues focused on Russian foreign and defense strategy. Cliff May, our, again, our, our founder and president of FDD and the chair of, of uh, FDD's Russia program. He's a long and uh, distinguished career in international relations, uh, journalism, communications, and politics. A veteran news reporter, foreign correspondent, and editor at the New York Times and other publications, he has covered stories around the globe in more countries than any of you would care for me to list. Also relevant, he was an exchange student at Leningrad State University in 1972. Putin was also a student at LSU back then, and you can ask Cliff uh, if, if he and Putin ever uh, shared any brewskis. Before we dive into our feature discussion, a few words about FDD. For more than 20 years, FDD has operated as a fiercely independent, nonpartisan research institute focused exclusively on national security and foreign policy. As a point of pride and principle, we do not accept foreign government funding. For more on our work, please visit our website, fdd.org, and follow us on Twitter, at FDD. All right, that's enough from me. Cliff, over to you. Thank you, John. 
Thank you, Dr. Wilder, for being here with us. Thank all of you in the room and all of you who are here virtually. I would like to, I want to start with some context, some history. I think it's important to understand how we got to this situation. In the podcast, the Foreign Policy Podcast, FTD's Foreign Policy Podcast, you did with Brad back in September, I think it was. Um, we looked at your May 1990, if I may, PhD dissertation at Yale, which was entitled Use of Force and the Uncertainty of Power, Soviet Behavior in International Crises. So you've been studying and working these issues for a reasonably long time, not as long as me, maybe, but long, and, 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 and with more effect. I think many Americans are familiar with what happened in Ukraine um, in 2022 with uh, February 24th, that was, with Putin's massive and brutal reinvasion, I would say, uh, of Ukraine. They may be less familiar with what transpired before in the post-Soviet era, after Putin took power, and of course, particularly from 2000 to 2022. And because they don't know, they're susceptible to misinformation and disinformation, disinformatia, as the Russians would say, of which there is no shortage. So maybe, if I, if I can, can, can you talk a little bit about what happened post-Soviet in terms and uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union and how Putin saw that and what he began to do once he came to power? I think you know where I'm, what I'm driving at. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. Thank you, everyone, for uh, this discussion today. Uh, that is a great question, and, and I, I could go on for hours. I will not. Um, I think what is important to understand that when the Soviet Union break apart, broke apart, uh, Russia and the other uh, independent countries of the former Soviet Union were welcomed into the international community. And the bottom line uh, assumption was, not assumption, but there was evidence that the populations of those countries wanted to be uh, integrated in the international system, were on a pluralistic, not fully democratic, but pluralistic path, sought to develop countries with market economies, sought to be good stakeholders in the international system. And in particular, Russia was accorded uh, a lot of status in the international system um, at, in exchange for basically recognizing the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence of the former Soviet uh, republics, contrary to, how, of course, how the Soviet Union had treated those countries. And Russia went on its path of uh, pluralism and market economy in the 1990s, which was chaotic, uh, disruptive, difficult. Um, and so did countries uh, like Ukraine, uh, where they established their own uh, national identities, recaptured their histories, developed their own societies, built their own relations with Europe, with the United States. Uh, Ukraine, in particular, for example, contributed to a number of international peacekeeping missions uh, in Europe, but also uh, abroad, further abroad from Europe, uh, and they were on those paths. When Putin came back to power, he began to move Russia away from that path of pluralism, integration, and market economy uh, towards uh, the kind of authoritarianism, state control of the economy, uh, fundamental corruption in the system, uh, which we see today. And one of the challenges for the Russian leadership, not that I feel sorry for the Russian leadership, is that that is not a path to growth. The Russian economy uh, early in Putin's leadership was growing, but that was basically because of the regeneration of oil and natural gas revenues, the foundations for which had been laid in the 1990s with privatization and the growth of market economy. Quickly, um, over the first 10 years of Putin's rule, the Russian economy began to bump up against the effects of being an authoritarian system uh, and increasing state control and ownership of the economy. 
So where were those resources going to come from? Increasingly, the Kremlin was counting on uh, not, not just relationships, but corrupt relationships with leaderships in the former Soviet space, and increasingly on Ukraine. The Russian defense industrial base uh, was dependent on a lot of inputs from the Ukrainian defense industrial base because of the legacy of the Soviet economy. Uh, Ukraine is obviously an egress through the Black Sea for a lot of, uh, potentially for Russian commerce. Uh, Ukraine itself has an energy sector, which uh, is a potentially lucrative playing field for Russian oligarchs uh, close to the Kremlin. And just at that moment, uh, when Ukraine was looking at signing an EU association agreement on Ukraine's genuine sovereign choice towards becoming a successful European country, uh, the Kremlin paid attention to the fact that not NATO enlargement, but a closer economic and social relationship between Ukraine and the EU was threatening to pull Ukraine away from those corrupt relationships and those assumptions of influence and domination that the Kremlin had been building uh, as Putin's uh, leadership began to mature. And that was the reason in 2014 for the Russian interference first uh, in internal Ukrainian politics, bending uh, Viktor Yanukovych away from his commitment to sign that EU association agreement. And then when Yanukovych failed uh, to negotiate successfully on a transition, a peaceful transition away from uh, his own corrupt rule to what the Ukrainian people wanted, which was a new leadership, that's when uh, Russia intervened in February of 2014 to stop, to put in the attempt to put an end to Ukraine's aspirations for a European future. And those are the roots of the uh, reinvasion, I agree with you, the reinvasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia, the job wasn't done. And the period from 2014 to 2022 was the Kremlin seeking again to keep Ukraine weak, to press hard, to uh, have those sources of influence, to press for Ukrainian uh, agreement, to not continue on that European path. But over the period of the post-Soviet era, Ukraine had become that pluralistic democracy, and Ukrainian society remained committed to those goals, and so Ukrainian leadership remained on that track, and so that was what led to uh, Putin's decision in February 2022 uh, to try to finish the job. Um, there's a lot of history here. I, I'm going to I'm going to highlight a couple, just a couple of other things that I think are important. You get to say I'm wrong. One would be uh, 2008, when Putin decided to carve a couple of provinces off Georgia, which also became was part of the Soviet Empire, was part of the Russian Empire, became an independent state. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about that, I think, precursor for the Ukraine invasion. Uh, fully. Uh, that's why I could talk for hours, but I wanted to... <laughs> I know. I'm uh, but it's a, it's a very important marking point. And what, unfortunately, so here, the frame for this to think about is that... Um, Russia had managed to uh, continue to influence uh, national decisions, not only in Georgia, but in Moldova, uh, because of unresolved conflicts on the territories of those countries. It's hard to move towards Europe when there are territorial uncertainties, because one of the uh, conditions for making sovereign decisions is controlling all the territory of your country. So Russian occupation in Transnistria, in, in Moldova, and in South Ossetia and Abkhazia uh, were ways to, in effect, 
hold those two countries back. And uh, when under uh, President Saakashvili and the, the, again, the strong societal support in Georgia, Saakashvili had begun to successfully move towards negotiating with different separatist um, movements in, within Georgia, uh, first in the south of Georgia, but then began to talk to the leadership in Abkhazia and to set his sights on ejecting Russian so-called peacekeepers in South Ossetia. And so Russia was going to lose that those kind of that those tentacles yeah. inside of Georgia. And Georgia was fully in, on track to talk with the EU for also a closer association arrangement. So in that sense, it was very much a, a precursor. And the and just to lash it back to Ukraine, the reason, the initial reason for the Russian inter, uh, invasion of Crimea was to create a similar unresolved conflict. It in was Donbass, particularly. Well, no, in Crimea. In, oh, in Crimea. In and then after, yeah, yeah, yeah. after yeah. Putin changed his mind and decided to, to illegally annex Crimea, they lost that leverage over Kyiv, right? Because they were claiming now it's ours. Right. That unresolved conflict, which holds countries back in, in the former Soviet space, by the Russian-owned narrative, wasn't there. And that's when the invasion of Donbass and Luhansk started. And that's when the negotiations around Minsk were designed to give Russia a veto over Ukrainian decisions about foreign policy, economic policy, by creating autonomous regions within Ukraine by which they could veto national decisions about foreign and security policy. And I remind people that, they were, that Putin was using what they call little green men, which were soldiers without insignias on their uniforms, so they could say, oh, this is an, indig an indigenous right. rebellion against Kyiv and in favor of Moscow and the Kremlin. And that's and then and, and then for years you have a sort of bubbling insurgency in Donbass and Luhansk. And a Kremlin which isn't so big on granting rights to its own regions, all of a sudden became, you know, a champion of the rights of certain Ukrainian regions to have a veto over foreign policy, purely instrumental to Russian control over the foreign and national security policies of Ukraine. Okay, one more landmark in history, and then I promise we'll move on, but I think it's important, uh, and that's the Budapest Memorandum, which I want you to explain a little bit about. And the reason I say that is because, as we'll also talk about, I think it's very much in the American interest that Putin not succeed in Ukraine, that Ukraine be free and independent and maintain its sovereignty. But I also think there is a, a moral obligation that the United States has, and I see that very much encapsulated in the Budapest Memorandum. So maybe tell a little bit about what that was. Sure. The, um, so at the, at the close of the Cold War, when there was this issue of what would happen with the 15 constituent countries that had, had been part of, uh, unwillingly mostly, of the Soviet Union, what are you going to do about the nuclear weapons, Soviet nuclear weapons? And the very, the, the weapons of the Soviet Union, under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Soviet Union is recognized as a nuclear weapons country under international law. Um, and so, but there were nuclear weapons uh, deployed within the Soviet Union, not only in the Russian Federation, but in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, and in Belarus. So the compromise, the, the negotiated compromise uh, of, at the time, uh, the, Bush, the first Bush administration uh, with European allies, including uh, the, the United Kingdom, was to negotiate a resolution in which Russia would be recognized. Again, there was these negotiations in which Russia was privileged under international law. Russia was recognized as the sole nuclear successor state to the Soviet Union. 
and in uh, exchange for international recognition of their territorial integrity and sovereignty, uh, and in exchange for Russian recognition of their territorial integrity and sovereignty, Kazakhstan, Belarus, and Ukraine agreed to, over time, trans transfer those nuclear weapons back to the Russian Federation and not assert a status as nuclear weapon states, and instead to join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as non-nuclear weapon states with all the rights, responsibilities, and protections under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, Kazakhstan and Belarus pretty rapidly returned their nuclear weapons. Ukraine got concerned that this was a source of leverage that they'd, I don't want to speak for Ukrainians, but sort of given away too easily. Second thoughts about um, the fact that you had Russian military on Ukrainian territory, because it was at the same time a separate negotiation about Russia retaining control of most of uh, the Black Sea Fleet in uh, Crimea and Sevastopol. Um, and so they wanted to, Ukraine raised again, was this the right decision and that they needed uh, guarantees or raise the possibility that maybe they should uh, retain those nuclear weapons. The negotiations focused on trying to preserve the agreement that had been made at the end of the Soviet period and the, the resolution were political assurances from not only the United States and the UK, but also the Russian Federation guaranteeing the territorial integrity and security of Ukraine in exchange for Ukraine uh, actually executing the agreement that had ma been made three years before. I think it's three years before, maybe two years before. Um, so not only the United States, but Russia as part of that agreement has a special obligation under international law to recognize and protect Ukraine's security um, and territorial integrity and sovereignty, which of course uh, didn't last long, uh, starting in 2014. And if I understand correctly, the, 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 the Budapest Memorandum, it's not a treaty, but it still is an international obligation yes. on our part and on Russia's part that yes. we do have. I mean, they signed it, they gave up nuclear weapons. In retrospect, maybe they, they wish they hadn't, but they did it, and they did it because, well, the Americans are, are behind us. Which is one of the reasons why we have made, the Biden administration has sought to make clear, and let me use the opportunity to make it clear, that much as we support Ukraine, we want Ukraine to be uh, sovereign, independent, secure. We want the Ukrainian people to be able to live the European life they have chosen in security and prosperity. Our support for Ukraine is about more than Ukraine. It is about the international order that keeps all countries and all populations safe, including Russia. Including the right Russia has to nuclear weapons is at stake because it is Russia that is shredding the terms of the international order in which agreements mean something, in which especially powerful countries have credibility to not uh, bully their neighbors. Uh, but the larger stakes are not, and this is something important to understand, it's not just a European security issue, it is a global security issue. The fabric of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in which nuclear powers agree to respect the territorial integrity and sovereignty of other countries, agree to support their peaceful use of nuclear energy for their prosperity, all of that is at stake in Russia's invasion and occupation of Ukraine. I want to spend a few minutes talking about how Putin, how the Kremlin justifies what it's doing uh, in Ukraine, because there are plenty of people in Africa, in Latin America, in America, who buy these arguments. I think it's important to understand what those arguments are, and Putin is 
I'm sure with some help, written about this at some length. Uh, in, in, uh, very quickly, my view is that Putin sees himself as a 21st century czar. And the czar's responsibility, his mission, and he has everything else he could possibly want, is to expand the empire in good times and restore the empire in bad times. And that's how he—that's my quick interpretation of how he sees his his role. What else does he want in his life? That's his mission. But there's justifications that they make. Maybe just talk a little bit about it, and because again, we debunk them, if you will, but they have been convincing to to too many people, in my view. I hate to I hate to rep uh, repeat unjustifiable justifications, but uh, I think it is important. I agree with you. So the fundamental argument, of course, is that uh, actually Ukraine is not an independent country because Ukraine is part of Russia because Russia was founded in Kiev. Going, um, I mean, beyond the absurdity of such a claim, um, obviously Russia and Ukraine have a uh, a history together over time, and the Ukrainian people and Russian people have a long history of uh, interaction, trade, movement, uh, and, and all of that is factually true. What it doesn't mean, though, is that that history determines borders and, the, and living up to the rules of the international order. No country in the world today exists within borders that are a direct um, throwback to 18, the 1860, which is, a, which is you know, the founding of Kiev and Rus. So every country in the world, every citizen of the world would be at risk of having their lives disrupted, their, um, to be possibly the target of cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, and UA, uh, armed UAVs, if the argument that countries get to just decide, well, we're going to we don't like where we are in 2022, so we're going to go back to some other date when we had an advantage, including the Russian Federation. If we're going to start unraveling history, a lot of the Russian Federation didn't belong to Russia over history. And so that's one of the great achievements of the UN Charter, is the UN Charter said countries will recognize borders that exist in the moment. They can be changed, but not through the use of force. Borders and territorial adjustments need to be made through diplomacy, through agreement, through international law. So that's one sort of justification. And again, I hesitate to use that argument. The other uh, justification is that somehow Ukraine is a threat to its own people. This was more of an argument in 2014 than it is now, yeah. but that the Russian invasion was because the Ukrainian state was going to threaten citizens in Crimea, in Donetsk, and Luhansk. Um, there is uh, no evidence that Ukraine was getting ready to assault citizens on its own territory. What Ukraine did was it took action to fight Russian-sponsored Russian, uh, individuals or actually Russian soldiers with their insignia pulled off, which, by the way, is also a violation of the Geneva Conventions, um, in order to defend their territory. There, um, the, the claims in 2014 of, of uh, genocide, of fascism, of Nazism, you know, none of those have been established by 
any uh, international tribunals or any investigations. And of course, now uh, the international community is very much involved in laying the groundwork for establishing that the actually the, uh, the country that has been committing war crimes on the territory of Ukraine is not, the, is not Ukraine, but in fact is the Russian Federation. Two points here. One is I think Putin actually believed that in eastern Ukraine, a city like Kharkiv, um, because people were more Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, they would welcome him. And of course they didn't. There were plenty of uh, Ukrainians in the, um, in the east who didn't speak that much Ukrainian, who nonetheless said, I am a Ukrainian and I don't want Russian soldiers telling me I have to kiss Putin's ring and bow to the Kremlin. That was an interesting thing that I think he may not have quite under, uh, understood. The other justification they use, and I see it on Twitter all the time, not least <laughs> to me, is this is a, the result of NATO expansion, as if NATO is this imperialist power trying, and of course that also is absolutely false. And Maybe you want to say a bit about how NATO is not that at all. It is simply open to those who want to join. Well, and in fact, Russia agreed to that. In the NATO-Russian Founding Act of 1997, uh, Russia agreed to have a cooperative relationship with NATO to, uh, to recognize that NATO membership was open. Uh, at the time, there was even discussion of would Russia ever qualify for NATO membership uh, if it continued on the path that had had started in the early 1990s of pluralism and market economy. So uh, contrary to the myth that NATO enlargement uh, was directed against Russia, it was actually uh, executed in the 1990s in full understanding that, that Russia needed to be have buy into and be part of European security structures as well. And when Putin came to office and, and his leadership came to office in the early 2000s, they were actively uh, floating the idea of when would Russia be a member of NATO. I was in many of those conversations. Uh, it was later that uh, when, when, the lot, when the crackdown within Russia really um, ossified and became more about authoritarianism, control of the economy, that the Russian leadership started to see the outside world as threatening because it threatened control <laughs> inside Russia, not military attack on Russia. But then NATO became that con convenient um, external enemy to justify the growing authoritarianism and state control within, within Russia itself. And I'll also point out that in 2014, it was in the Ukrainian constitution that Ukraine was a neutral country. So Ukraine was not on the cusp of NATO membership. Although even if it were, under its obligations under the UN Charter, Russia um, is obligated to recognize that countries get to choose their own uh, foreign policies. And if the Ukrainian people seek a European future, whether that is the EU or NATO <coughs> under, under international law, uh, that is something that Russia as a UN Security Council permanent member is actually on the hook to respect. But of course, we've seen it doesn't. I want to pick up on something you said and have you elaborate, and that's Russia's actions on the battlefield since uh, over the past two years, the February 24th will be the two-year anniversary, how Russia has conducted itself uh, under the laws of armed conflict. I, <laughs> I think we all know that, um, and we've seen this repeatedly. We saw this not only, we see this not only in how Russia conducts its operations uh, in Ukraine,
but we saw a precursor of that with how Russia conducted operations in Chechnya. Um, that uh, the idea of uh, proportionality, of avoiding civilian harm, of making choices about military operations uh, that sometimes accept uh, disadvantage in the execution of military operations in order to avoid um, civilian harm is not something that the Russian military uh, has uh, been trained in. It's not something that the Russian leader, political leadership uh, holds dear or, or you know, abides by. So we saw a precursor of that uh, even more than in Georgia. We saw it in Chechnya. So yes, we, this is a this is a a, a brutal leadership which uh, does not care much about uh, the well-being of its own citizens, and certainly not the citizens of a country that it is identified um, as an enemy. And that is something that the Ukrainian people have been enduring. Uh, as, I want to highlight this one too. To me, one of the most horrifying aspects of Russia's conduct of the conflict in Ukraine is not merely targeting civilian infrastructure, uh, you know, bringing down a maternity hospital in the early days of the war, targeting a theater in Mariupol, killing civilians lined up for bread, you know, in eastern Ukraine, but it is uh, the, the taking of Ukrainian children right. from their, uh, either, either from their families or orphans and sending them to Russia um, in this uh, sort of almost Nazi-like idea of ethnic purity, that they need to be educated as Russians, that they are somehow going to be re-educated yeah. uh, and brought back to benefit uh, the Russian Federation. It is just astonishing to think that a, a Europe which faced the horror of such a leadership to do that to populations in the 1940s is now confronted with another leadership that is doing that against uh, a country against the Ukrainian people in the twenty in, in the twenty twenties. Yeah, Putin wants more Russians, and one that's one way to get them. After all, the other way is to conquer and subjugate them, and make them do his will. Okay, now the, perhaps the most important question, because all all the wonks here in this room and watching, they understand why all this is important. But if you're somebody out anywhere in America, you may think, you know, why should I be giving billions of my tax dollars? To Ukrainians, that's how they see it. We can talk about how that's not exactly the way the money works, but you know, I understand. And and this is very prominent. Hey, we have an insecure. We don't have a secure border in this country, and we're worried about Russians coming over the Ukrainian border. Let's get our border secure first, and then we can worry about the Russians. Uh, I would argue that homeland security is vital and foreign policy and national security are vital, and a great power can do both at the same time. But more to the point, why should Americans outside Washington, D.C. care about this and want to spend their tax dollars in any way on this mission? So I'll just take you back two years ago, when the in, almost two years ago, when the invasion started. The extraordinary generosity of the American people and uh, many of our European allies and partners uh, coincided with the courage and the ingenuity of the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian people. If there hadn't been that support um, for Ukraine in February, March, April, May of 2022, in all likelihood, at least part of the Russian war plan would have worked in two important respects that I want to highlight for you to think about. 
One is uh, to have taken the city of Kyiv, the capital. And the goal there, the Russian objective, uh, was to take the capital, not to necessarily occupy it with Russian forces per se, but to put in a government, back to my original point, put in a government that would be controlled by the Kremlin so that Ukraine was not an independent country. And another major objective was to take territory all along the Black Sea coast from Crimea to Odessa, to um, Moldova, to the borders of NATO, to Romania, Poland, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, to the borders of NATO. How well the Russian forces would have succeeded, that's pretty ambitious, not clear, but they clearly had a plan to control the Black Sea coast. Um, and uh, the stakes were not just the government in Kyiv, but also Russian access to controlling the Black Sea. The Black Sea is an international waterway with NATO members as uh, literal states, states on the borders, including Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. Russia would have been able to close off the Black Sea. That is a direct threat to NATO allies and therefore to the United States. Russia would have been able to move its military occupation further west than it has succeeded in doing with Ukrainian defenses and our support for two years. What does that mean? Those UAVs that you're watching the Russians use from Crimea <coughs> to strike at Ukrainian cities would be able to range European capitals. Those cruise missiles that the Russians are using against Ukrainian critical energy infrastructure could threaten European allied, NATO ally, and US personnel and military forces and businesses and citizens and exchange students in Europe. That didn't happen because of the courage and the skill of the Ukrainians and because the American people were willing to support security assistance in the range of about uh, $45 billion over those two years. And European partners and allies have provided about $43 billion in security assistance over that same period. So those are the stakes, because Russia's not done fighting. And Russia has certain disadvantages in uh, its economy. It is subject to sanctions and, ex and a, a really substantial amount of technology exports. But Russia has developed relationships uh, with North Korea, with China, and Iran to get around some of those restrictions. And so you're seeing Iranian-provided UAVs striking at Ukraine, which again, I highlight, could be, uh, in, in a different world, could be further forward deployed uh, more towards Europe. Uh, and, and so those, that's part of the stakes. So that's what's at stake right now with the supplemental proposal. Because right now, the Ukrainians have learned to fight. They've held off the Russians. They've actually taken back half the ter territory that the Russians first occupied in those early months. Uh, they've, they've disrupted Russian operations in the Western Black Sea so that the Russians have not been able to seize Odessa. And the Ukrainians have been able to reestablish some of their commercial shipping and get some of the grain out, uh, provide the Global South with much needed agricultural products among other uh, benefits of Ukraine's military operations. Um, and the Ukrainians are fighting every day. But if we cannot supply the Ukrainians with ammunition, 
air defense interceptors, spare parts, um, in order to be able to sustain those, those front lines as they have done so well, we could well be back in a scenario that we were facing in 2022. And that's why I highlight for you to remember what the stakes were in 2022. This is not over. The Russians are not done. Putin hasn't achieved his objective. If anything, Ukraine is stronger, more unified, and the international community is stronger behind it. He hasn't quite figured out yet that he's failed. He needs to understand that he's failed. And so we need to sustain the support to Ukraine through 2024 so we can build a Ukraine that can defend itself over the long term and, and is able to succeed on that European path. I'm going to go further, and you don't need to nod your head or, or and say that Putin believes he's going to win. My reading is that he thinks that America doesn't have the resolve uh, to be steadfast and to continue to support Ukraine. And I see the and I know what evidence he sees. But but, I, but leave that alone now, because there's one other question I want to want to make sure you, you address, and that there is an there is an influential faction within the foreign policy community who says, okay, I see why Ukraine would be important, but you know what? Taiwan is more important economically in all kinds of ways. We have to defend Taiwan, and uh, I don't see we can do we can't do both. So let that let the Ukrainian battlefield go the way it goes, and we'll worry about Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan that's more important. What's interesting there is that Taiwanese leaders do get why Ukraine is important. They do get why this would be seen as a precedent in the eyes of Xi Jinping. You want to talk a little bit about that just briefly? Sure. Let me, let me address that. But let me first address the notion that we can't do both. In fact, we can now, the US military is better positioned in, uh, in capabilities than it was before this started. Because the mechanism by which we have provided capabilities to Ukraine, there's two of them primarily. One is called USAI, Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. That's procurement for new capabilities. But most of what flowed, especially early in the conflict, is presidential drawdown authority. Presidential drawdown authority allows the US to, to give existing stocks of capabilities and US stocks to other countries as well. But the focus right now is on Ukraine um, because of the conflict. But that comes, the, the budgets that were passed in the past two years that Congress passed in support of Ukraine include replenishment funds. So the United States military, in donating capabilities to the Ukrainians, then has been able to buy new production, more recent versions of those capabilities, to restock itself um, in order to use the opportunity to modernize by newer versions of ammunition, platforms, all these capabilities. So a lot of the money that Americans generously provided to support of Ukraine actually has gone to the American defense industrial base to replenish US stocks. And we can do both. And every decision that um, Secretary Austin recommends to the White House on what to provide Ukraine is balanced against a number of factors, including making sure that the United States can, can absolutely support and supply our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. So we can do both. We are doing both, and in many respects, we're doing it even better because of that particular feature of what presidential drawdown authority is. On the geopolitics of your question, of your point, uh, there is very good reason to believe that the Chinese are watching very closely and have a huge stake in Russia's success. 
because if Putin is successful in shredding the UN Charter and benefiting from it and, and renegotiating by action and by the use of force the terms of European security, what's to stop China from following that path when it is ready on Indo-Pacific security? And that's one of the reasons why China has had Russia's back in the UN Security Council in votes uh, condemning Russia's intervention. It's one of the reasons uh, why China has been eager to benefit from Russia's uh, sort of isolation in benefiting from lower oil prices, uh, in all kinds of commercial advantages in dealing with Russia. It's partly to bolster Russia's operations in Ukraine because the Chinese leadership doesn't want Putin to lose because of what that would mean about the strength of the international community in pushing back against a bully, but it's also uh, taking advantage in the meantime to build its own capabilities, taking advantage of Russia because China's watching and planning for the coming decade for itself as well. I want to be respectful of your time, and I want to make sure we go to audience questions, but at least three questions I want to try to get in the next five minutes or so. Um, one is attackums. Why has the administration persistently refused to provide the longer-range Army tactical missile systems, and especially those with unitary warheads, which I think our analysts here at FDD, Mark Montgomery, Brad Bowman, uh, think would be very helpful and that they really need. And as you know, the criticism of the, of the Biden administration has been that, yes, supplying weapons to them enough so that the Ukrainians don't lose, but not enough so that they win. And attackums would be an important, not the only one, but an important component in that, in that, in that, in winning. Let me be very clear. No decision on what to provide the Ukrainians is uh, calculated in the realm of let's just give them enough to fight, not enough to win. Um, our first, from in these two years, the first uh, decision uh, metric for what our, what was a biweekly, twice a month, provision of capabilities to Ukraine was first and foremost what the Ukrainians said was their priority, and second what the shape of the battle was in the moment. So at first it was javelins, then it was HIMARS, then it was air defense, then it was armor, then it was mine clearing capabilities. So we are. The DOD has been generously provided resources by the American people to support Ukraine, but it is, you know, it's not infinite, and so you have to make decisions. So we've been driven by the Ukrainian priorities and by uh, the shape of the battle and what they need in the moment. Um, we have provided Ukraine with longer strike cap capabilities, um, including, I can't get into too much, some, some UAV capabilities, uh, some modified longer range strike from air, air to ground uh, capabilities. Um, and so they have been able to take strikes at places in places like Crimea. Um, as the battle shifts now to thinking about the importance of Ukraine holding the Black Sea, we're looking again at options and looking at uh, how to ramp up our defense industrial base in producing more and better longer range capabilities so that we might have the option to provide Ukraine with longer range strike capabilities. All of our uh, decisions have to be also measured against readiness requirements. Readiness in UCOM, but also readiness in Indo-PACOM. 
And now, as we're seeing every day, readiness in CENTCOM. So global uh, availability of some capabilities play a role in decisions about what kinds of capabilities to provide with the Ukrainians. Uh, but that is also an evolving situation. And um, we have been able to provide the Ukrainians with some longer range capabilities <coughs> that early in the conflict, we didn't think we would be able to. Okay, and, and this, uh, this question, in a way, it's unfair. How are the Europeans doing? Are they stepping up and bearing their burdens? as they should. And again, that's something that people tweet at me all the time when I support uh, Ukraine. And it's an unfair question in the way because you're saying Europeans that, that the French, the Germans, the, uh, the Latvians, very, very different in terms of percentage of GDP that they're, that they're giving over. But just give a, a few minutes on what the Europeans are doing yeah. and how you see it. So the United States is 16th in rank uh, in terms of the percentage of GDP contributed in security assistance to Ukraine. We're 16th. Now, our GDP is bigger than a lot of European countries, in fact, all European countries. So the numbers, the, the, you know, sort of the headline number is big. But countries like Estonia are way ahead of us in terms of how much of their security assistance that's taken out of stocks and contributed. Um, the United States has contributed about 30 uh, advanced tanks to Ukraine. European countries together have contributed uh, 200 modern tanks to uh, Ukraine, Leopard tanks, and many hundreds of refurbished T-72 tanks that the Ukrainian, uh, refurbished at their own expense, at European countries' expense. Sometimes the United States helped with those expenses uh, to provide to the Ukrainians so they could fight for the last two years. That's you know, an example. Um, the United States has not provided a, a presidential drawdown authority package since December, because we're out of money. Ukraine, the Europeans in the last Ukraine Defense Contact Group continue to announce new security contributions to Ukraine. The United States can't do that right now. Europe is sustaining Ukraine in early 2024 in a way that the United States uh, hopefully will return to uh, once, we, once we get the supplemental passed. Uh, but Europe absolutely has worked with the United States to plug gaps, to provide capabilities that the United States doesn't have. And they are leading of the eight uh, capability coalitions that we've now formed looking at immediate but longer term requirements for Ukraine. Um, they are leading all of those capability coalitions in one way or the another. We are co-leading with the Europeans on an Air Force Capability Coalition and an Artillery co Capability Coalition. But coalitions like armor, uh, air defense, maritime security are being led by uh, our European allies and partners. And that includes not just operational planning, it includes providing platforms, uh, sustainment, maintenance, uh, and building infrastructure as well. All right. You, the title of this conversation is meant to be Victory and Defeat in Ukraine. Hard to do, maybe, but uh, you're up to the challenge. Can you define victory and define defeat for the U.S. and for Ukraine? As briefly and as succinctly as you can. Unfortunately, defeat is easier to define. <laughs> it is um, a Ukraine that is not sovereign, independent, democratic, able to continue on its chosen uh, democratic path. I want to highlight, though, that isn't measured in how much territory the Russians occupy, because as I pointed out, Russians don't have to continue to occupy all that much territory to control a country. At least that's their experience. In, in, I think their experience is slightly changing uh, in Moldova and Georgia, where leaderships and populations are increasingly 
concerned about the continuing Russian occupation. But the Russian play is not to directly occupy all of Ukraine. It's to have a compliant leadership in Ukraine. Um, and uh, they've not succeeded. And they've not succeeded because while they do occupy territory of Ukraine, they are being uh, fought, they are being pushed back, uh, and they do not control enough territory to be able to influence, manipulate, and succeed in their efforts to overthrow uh, the Ukrainian government and put in place a compliant leadership. That's what defeat looks like. So don't measure it in terms of how close to Kyiv they, they may be, although that would be bad. Whether they get all the way to Lviv in Western Ukraine, that would be very bad. Um, they're, they're object, they're more, the Russians are more adaptable and, and uh, flexible in how they would execute that domination of Ukraine. What does victory look like? Victory is a Ukraine that is, uh, first and foremost, uh, its national security policy, its foreign policy, its economic policy is determined by the Ukrainian people and their democratically elected leadership in which Ukraine is, continues to be a sovereign country recognized within its internationally recognized borders um, as an independent country. And that is the objective we are working to. I know there's a lot of speculation about what kind of negotiation could there be. Uh, in the end, that's Ukraine's decision about what a negotiation would look like. Um, but we are absolutely firm as uh, the United States that we support Ukraine's territorial integrity as it defines that, um, its sovereignty, independence, and its right to choose its own future. That's victory for Ukraine. Okay, we're going to go to audience questions, so raise your hand, and we'll get a microphone to you. Why we do, is there anything I should have asked you that didn't, that you want to respond to? Any points that you want to either say or, or just emphasize before we go to the questions from the audience? Um, no, I'd like okay. to ask questions. Yeah. I got through a lot of that. Uh, go ahead. Yes, Mr. Schmidt. Uh, New York Times, Eric Schmidt from the New York Times, thank you very much. Uh, Two-part question. One is you could just address the, the news of the afternoon that uh, President Zelensky has formally fired uh, General Zaluzny. Uh, what impact do you think that will have on the campaign right now? And what's your assessment of General Zersky, his replacement? That's question number one. Um, question number two is many analysts feel that 2024 should be a year where Ukraine holds what they have uh, and then builds up capability, both in their terms of manpower and materiel uh, for any extensive, whether it's another major counteroffensive, not wait until uh, later this year or even into 2025, uh, perhaps striking selectively at places like Crimea and their supply lines into uh, into Ukraine. Do you share that assessment right now? Is that the most realistic uh, assessment that you see going ahead in 2024 for Ukraine? Thank good, you. Good first. Thanks. Um, for on on President President Zelensky is the president of his country, um, and Ukraine, unlike Russia has a, um, a democratic civilian control of the military, and President Zelensky gets, uh, Russia, obviously Putin controls the military, but it's, uh, notice I said democratic uh, civilian control of the military. Um, President Zelensky is elected by his population, and uh, he has the right to choose who he believes the commander in chief um, in, in the war is, and he has decided to choose uh, General Sirsky, who's an experienced, successful, commander. He has led uh, bravely, well, um, and, in, and really to good effect Ukrainian forces uh, in, uh, in Luhansk and in Donetsk. So 
in the, the United States will respects and will work with whoever the democratically elected government and leader, President Zelensky, chooses uh, to be his commander in chief. And we will work effectively with uh, General Sirsky. We already have uh, because of his, his role already. Um, on the question of 2024, um, we, are, we are in close consultation with the Ukrainians about their objectives for 2024. Uh, in order to be able to shape our security assistance, which again I highlight, hopefully we will be able to uh, again reinvigorate with a successful resolution of the, of the supplemental decisions in Congress. We will shape that security assistance uh, to resource uh, the operations to uh, meet the objectives which are going to be politically uh, defined by the political leadership in Ukraine and then validated through best military advice within Ukraine and through our discussions as we have again for the last uh, two years. I don't, I'm not going to speculate about what specifically uh, the shape of those military operations would look like, partly for operational security reasons, but partly uh, for uh, because we need to work with the Ukrainians. They get to define how they should conduct their operations, uh, and we'll give them our advice. We have a very strong, I think, uh, relationship. We have a lot of credibility and trust built between the U.S. political leadership and the Ukrainian political leadership and military-to-military -military relationships. Uh, but so that can't really speak... I mean, any more detail? Yes, please. Uh, Kim Dozier, CNN analyst. You mentioned that after Russia had um, occupied and annexed, illegally annexed Crimea, that it had to create another autonomous region of friction inside Ukraine, uh, hence the operations in Donetsk, et cetera. Does that mean that if the Ukrainian army could push Russia back to just Crimea, that there would be a possibility of joining NATO? Yeah. Or as long as Kyiv says Crimea is still part of Ukraine, that that would trigger Article 5s, which would then block them from joining NATO? Membership in NATO is a political decision. It's not a technical decision. So um, as we work with Ukraine so that Ukraine when, uh, by the, the thank you, let's be clear, Ukraine now, in addition to wanting to join EU, is very clear that it wants to become a member of NATO. We support that. Uh, we are working with Ukraine on programs to um, meet the standards, interoperability standards, uh, defense institution building, and so we fully support that aspiration and we'll work with them. Uh, the specific terms of what the end of the war looks like, as I suggested, is is very much something that Ukraine has the lead on. Um, uh, membership in NATO is um, something that a sovereign territorial sovereign country with territorial integrity um, brings to the table. Uh, the terms of that are, you know, it's too early to speculate because that is not the situation that Ukraine is in. Uh, there's uh, 2024 to work through, and uh, but we support the aspiration, and we want to provide Ukraine with the, the capabilities, whether that's economic or military, to achieve its objectives in its de definition of what territorial integrity and sovereignty is as it moves towards NATO membership. Okay, thank you. 
Hi, thank you. Uh, Joel Gerke with the Washington Examiner. Thanks for doing this. Uh, two uh, relatively quick questions, I hope. Um, it's, it's commonplace now to describe this conflict as a war of attrition. And of course, Russia is bigger than Ukraine. Uh, if the if the funding were in place, is there some? Do you have an assessment that there is some combination of military equipment, training, ammunition, etc., that would allow the Ukrainians to break that dynamic, break Russian lines, and and make major territorial gains? Is is that a matter of funding and policy choice? Uh, and then second, you mentioned the Ukrainian children in Russia. Um, what kind of conversations can you tell us about? Uh, y y what, what does it take to get them back? Is that a matter of battlefield leverage or making some kind of concession, you know, to some, some other kind of negotiation to, to get them back? Uh, on the second question, I'm not deep into those negotiations. It's not really a, a, a DOD lead on that, but I believe there is a focused international uh, uh, groundwork being laid for a resolution of that, and it lays in the, uh, in the tracks of international humanitarian law, holding Russia to account, and, you know, but I, I don't have the details on that. Um, on, on the issue of do, is the U.S. assessment that Ukraine can change the dynamics of the war of attrition, uh, your characterization, not mine, yes, we do. We think the Ukrainians have the capability. We think they have the training with the capabilities we've already provided. Those only 30 tanks the United States, we've provided a lot of Bradleys and strikers, so we're not, we're not slackers. Um, but with the armor capability, the artillery capability, um, what we lack right now is uh, a steady flow of ammunition uh, to be able to provide to the Ukrainians. That's why we need the funding, um, the repair, the maintenance. Uh, and there are plans for new rounds of training to help the Ukrainians take that next step towards an even higher level of capability uh, in training as they bring new soldiers in, as they re refit and, and prepare for what's ahead of them in uh, 2024. So yes, we do believe that Ukraine could seize the initiative, could seize advantages. I won't get into specifics about where they could take territory. Again, that's kind of operational. It's, it's to be determined by the Ukrainians themselves. But yes, absolutely, we do believe that they can change the dynamics of this conflict if they are resourced properly. I think we have time probably for one more question, maybe two, I don't know. Let's see how it goes. Hello, good evening. Thank you very much for a fantastic explanation of many things. And I'm really excited by the use of the term re-invasion because it sets a context that many times some of us seem to have missed. My question is, this comes from the Russian playbook. It is not significantly different from skirmishes we've seen in the past. What have we learned, and we not lessons observed, but lessons learned, so that there is an actual application of something a little different this time around? to leverage what Russia sees as their right. But we look, on, look upon in horror and say, you know, what, what sort of behavior is this? Um, what are we doing differently? And I'm not just speaking about the hard power approach. What kind of combination of the several types of powers that we think could bring some type of decisive conclusion to all these various definitions of victory. 
Great. Thank you. It's a great question. And the, the basic frame, I think the common element of a frame to answer your very good question is resilience. Not being dependent on Russian energy imports, not being dependent on Russian financial flows, not being subject to corrupt relationships that can influence our politics, not being um, vulnerable to election interference. Um, not being uh, vul not being dependent on uh, this isn't a lesson for the United States because we aren't dependent on Russian military hardware. A lot of countries are looking at their stocks and going, this probably isn't a good idea for us to be that dependent on Russian military uh, sales um, because first of all their sales have dropped because they're kind of using the stuff themselves, uh, but also a lot of the old Russian military capabilities that was the um, core of their military sales hasn't performed very well in, in Ukraine, and the Russian defense industry has had to rely on places like Iran. So working with allies and partners <coughs> and vulnerable countries that the Russians may have next in their sights, the Moldovas, the Georgias, the Kazakhstans, um, continuing to keep hope alive for uh, Belarus and Belarus's future, I think that is uh, something that we knew generally but now that we've seen the extent to which the Kremlin is willing to use all the instruments of its power to try to subvert, subjugate, and dominate an important neighbor, I think that that's been heightened and the seriousness of that has really been elevated. All right, I wanna, let's, let's thank Dr. Wallander for sitting down with us today. I wanna, Thank all of you here, thank all of you at home, and I wanna say, I wanna thank Brad Bowman, who directs our military center for his tireless work on this issue, and uh, for arranging this discussion, and uh, for all of you, for more information, FDD, and our Center on Military and Political Power, and the latest analysis we have of issues, please visit fdd.org. Thank you for joining us in person and virtually on the live stream, and again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.